Bruce here, and I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you today. Before we get into the Word, I just had a quick announcement for you. Um, we do have a members-only meeting this coming Wednesday after the service. So if you're a member, please plan on being there for both the service and the meeting if you're able to. And then also, as we're about to pray, we'll also pray for uh, Becky and Colton as their, uh, Becky was induced this morning. And uh, so the baby is on the way. So let's pray for them and, uh, and pray that it will be a smooth delivery. But let's pray now. Lord, I pray that you would move mightily in our midst today. Help us to cling to the hope of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would remove all distractions from us. Keep my lips from error. And if there is anything errant that I say, please help it to be quickly forgotten. Let only your truth remain. And let your name be magnified. Lord, we do pray for Becky and Colton this morning. Pray for Becky. She was induced. I pray that the labor would go well. That they would get to see their son quickly. And bless the whole process, Lord. Help it to be very smooth. Let there be no complications. And Lord, we pray your blessing upon them. Pray for the people today who get to hear this, Lord. I pray that we would be comforted by these truths. Pray that you convict our hearts where we need to be convicted and comfort our hearts where we are weak. I pray all this in your name. Amen. In the winter of 2017, in Colorado Springs, on a, just a random seemingly every other day, my wife and I's lives would be radically changed forever. My wife was pregnant with our first child and was roughly halfway through the pregnancy. We had just found out we were having a boy. And it was shortly thereafter that we found out um, my son, who was in utero, had a significant heart condition that we never heard of before called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, HLHS for short. Essentially, the left ventricle doesn't grow in the womb and would not function. They told us there is no cure for this condition, but that um, there, he would have to go undergo three reconstructive surgeries of his heart, open heart surgeries. So at four days old, he had his first open heart surgery. My son's name is Grayson. I think he might be watching today, so I'm going to say hi to Grayson. Love you, buddy. At four months old, he received his second surgery, his second open heart surgery, and by God's grace, both went very well. And they told us to expect the third one somewhere between three and five years of age. So we, you know, moved on with life. We, he's a wonderful little guy. Since that time, we've had another child named Wesley. He's 10 months old. And uh, COVID has been an interesting time for my family as we try to, uh, try to be cautious with this upcoming surgery in mind for Grayson. And the time has come. The time has come for the third surgery. So God willing, on April 22nd, Grayson will have his third open heart surgery. And we've been through two of these before, but it makes it uh, absolutely, it doesn't make it any easier. So with that coming up, Pastor Scott asked me to preach before we go through this again. He just asked me to preach what was on my heart. It's a very hard thing to do because I don't even know what's on my heart at times. There's plenty of thoughts going around. I didn't know what to preach on. So I just considered myself. I considered my own need. And I stand before you as someone who has never wavered in trusting that the Lord is good and trusting him with my son. But I also stand as a man here who is nervous, who is afraid, who is, feels weak. I feel helpless in a lot of ways. I don't want to see my son go through this again. I don't want to see my son suffer, and I don't want the Lord to take him away. Even though I know he has every right to, 
We have good theology. We understand the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I've done nothing to earn my son. He's a gift from the Lord. But I don't want to lose him. And after considering my own heart and my own propensity to this weakness of just fear, questions, I wanted to preach on comfort. I wanted to preach on the comfort that only the Christian can experience. The comfort that can transcend any circumstance. The comfort that can reach your soul when nothing else can. So I preach today to comfort my own heart. But I preach to comfort yours as well because I'm not ignorant to know that you are suffering in some ways. Perhaps greater, perhaps lesser, I don't know. But we all need comfort. And my goal today, I want us to leave this place not focusing on what we have lost, not focused on what you're losing now, not focused on what you're worried you might lose, but focused on something you can never lose. That's what I want us to focus on today. And that, I believe, will give us great comfort. And I hope this will be accomplished by God's grace through Romans 8. So turn with me to Romans 8 as we look at this passage. We'll be focusing on verses 26 through 39. But we always do well to consider the verses that lead up to this so we can understand the context, so we can understand where these verses come. Romans 8, of course, is a wonderful passage for many of you. You probably read it very often because it's very encouraging. Romans 8.1 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And the passage moves through the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. The Spirit we see in verse eight as it, or in uh, chapter eight as it goes along. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit sets free from slavery to sin. The Spirit indwells you. You're adopted in Christ, and the Spirit assures you that you are His. And then we get to verse 17. And I want us to start reading here. It says, And if children, this is what the Spirit does, He testifies that we are His children. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Suffering for the believer is required. It's going to happen in some capacity. Now, in this context, it's probably primarily talking about persecution, but we will see how these uh, truths can comfort anyone in any affliction. We see Paul mentioned this suffering here, and then he shifts to a future focus in verse 18. He shifts from a present focus to what they're going through now to maybe the trials that they're suffering, and he looks forward to the glory. Read this with me in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the glory so far outweighs the present circumstances, it's not even comparable. If you had all of the trials of this earth in one hand and the glory of heaven in the other, it would so far outweigh, it's not even close. That's what he's saying. This is how he's also able to say in 2 Corinthians, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul wants these believers in Rome to look to the future glory. And God wants us to look that way as well. In verses 19 through 22, we're introduced to this idea of groaning. This cre the creation groans in agony, waiting for a day where it will be made new. It will be redeemed. If you've noticed, on this earth, there's a constant pattern because of the fall of growth and decay, life, death. 
and it's constant over and over again. It, it personifies, this passage personifies creation as groaning, saying, when will we be remade? The new heavens and new earth are expected and anticipated. But then in verse 23 through 25, the groaning is applied to us as believers. Read verse 23 with me. And not only this, but we also but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Believers groan. That word groan has to do with the noises or the utterances that come forth from somebody in pain. With no quick way of escape. It was used to describe Israel in their slavery to Egypt. God says in Exodus... I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. And I've come down to rescue them. These are cries of pain. So why do believers groan? Well, it's clear in verse 23, they're waiting eagerly for their adoption as sons, the redemption of their body. Believer, you are adopted in Christ positionally, but we don't experience the fullness of that yet, do we? One day you will have a redeemed body and experience the fullness of God's adoption. This is why believers groan. Do you groan? Do you long for something in the future that you don't have now? We are still subject to our humanity. We'll, we still feel pain. We still get weak we battle sin on a daily, even moment-by-moment moment basis. We deal with loss. We deal with death. We groan. When I sin against God, I hate it, and I long for the day where I, don't, where I have a body where, that will not sin against him anymore. When I look at my son and I watch him suffer at times, I long for the day where suffering will be gone. Right? There will be no suffering in heaven. There will be no conditions, no pain, no surgeries, because we will all be made new. Surely you have something in your life that's causing you to groan. Something that's causing you pain, eagerly awaiting the glory ahead. Verse 24 and 25 simply say this, we don't see what we await, but we eagerly wait for it. We are excited for this. And it's this backdrop. That's the backdrop that these verses come in. The backdrop of groaning. The backdrop of looking forward to something in the future that will do away with everything here. It's the backdrop of groaning that Paul says what he says in verse 26 through 39, which is our primary text today. Friends, this passage is like aloe to the sunburnt soul. It doesn't take away the sunburn, but it makes it feel better. It soothes you. It takes away the pain because it takes your eyes off of the things on the horizontal and looks to the vertical and looks forward to what's ahead. I hope you're excited because we have seven things from this passage that I want us to see that will comfort us along the way. That's why the, the message today is titled, Things to Comfort You While We Wait. Reasons for comfort while we wait. Number one, we see this in verse 26 through 27. It says this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The first truth to comfort me and comfort you is that the Spirit helps you. You're not alone. Paul wanted these believers to know they're not groaning without somebody with them. They're not waiting for glory alone. They have the Spirit. Look what the Spirit does. In the same way the Spirit helps our weakness. What weakness? Here's an example of a weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever looked at a situation and thought, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what they need. I don't know what I need. I don't know whether to pray for deliverance from this scenario 
or the strength to endure this scenario. I don't know what they need. You know who knows exactly what you need in every way, for every moment? The Holy Spirit. And it says he intercedes for us with things that can't even be uttered, can't even be expressed with words. He intercedes for the saints. And guess what? God always hears it. Do you know why? Because verse 27 says, he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He always asks of God what exactly you need. You are not alone. Perhaps you feel abandoned on this earth in some way. Maybe you've been abandoned by people before. Or maybe you're feeling abandoned by someone now. You are not abandoned, believer. You have the helper. Remember Jesus promised it? Promised the Spirit? Promised that he would come as a helper? He comes and is here helping us along the way. This is a great comfort for me. Because it means that even though I pray to the best of my ability, he covers what I miss. Even if I'm praying for the wrong thing. He covers me. This truth doesn't say, well, don't pray anymore because the Spirit intercedes. No, it says, pray to the best of your ability and be encouraged that the Spirit intercedes for you in exactly the way you need it. That's comforting to me. Number two, perhaps one of the most popular verses for believers, and for good reason, it is glorious. Verse 28 is where we get comfort number two. Let's read it first. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Believer, comfort number two is that God works all things together for your ultimate good. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that everything that will happen to you is good. But he works all things together for your good. It does not say for your physical good. This is your spiritual good. Notice, believer, this is a promise to you. It is exclusive to the believer. Look at it in verse 28. It says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That would be the believers who are called according to his purpose. Some of you might say, well, wait, how does that work? How can that be? Because I look at scenarios in my life and I do not see anything good. This passage doesn't promise that we'll understand every reason. This passage doesn't promise that we will see in every way that it is good, but the promise is that it is working for your good. And if we believe that God cannot lie, we must trust this promise. Some might say, well, how can, su- how can such extreme forms of suffering be for somebody's good? That doesn't make sense. Well, do we not have scripture to prove that this is the case? Consider Joseph. Remember what Joseph says at the end of Genesis? When he looks at his brothers and says, you meant all of this for evil? But what does he say? But God meant it for good. Perhaps we could look to the author of Romans to be encouraged in this. Paul, who is writing this, saying this truth, went through excruciating suffering over and over and over again. And he says, God is working it together for my good. Last week, we considered the beauty of the resurrected Savior. And on Good Friday, we considered the, really the heinous horrible act of man to crucify the Savior. People would look at that and say, how can that be good? And yet, we know the greatest evil man has ever committed worked out for good, right? That's why we're all here. And just in case you doubt this, Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Believer, it's a promise that you can take to the bank and be sure 
God is working every circumstance, no matter how small, for your good. You know what that means? That means there is nothing that is purposeless in your life. That is comforting to me. Because even when I don't see a purpose in something, I know God is working it for my good. Ultimately, this is our encouragement, believer. We see that he's working it for your ultimate good because of what we see in verse 29 through 30. Look at this. We see this in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You have been predestined to look like Christ. That's what he's doing. He's making you look like Christ. And not only that, what does verse 30 say? These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You have a glory that awaits you. He has accomplished it through the cross. Even the worst things that can happen in this life, as we will see later in this passage, cannot take that glory away from you. You may look at your situation right now, whatever you're going through, and look and see, and all you see is pain and heartache. All you see is frustration. All you have is questions, and yet he stands behind the scenes and knows the exact purpose for what you're going through. God has never made this truth, for me personally, more profoundly clear than with my son. I remember, and I've, I've shared this before to some, I remember in the first surgery, you know, we... We just got to see him after the first surgery. They have him in these little boxes that are kind of tilted to you. He's hooked up to all these wires, all these things that are monitoring his heart, uh, various things. And it would, there would be this time of day that we, my wife and I hated. The, the nurse would come in and would say, it's time for another blood draw. It's time for another injection or whatever it is. And these were horrible because they would have to prick his foot and they would have to take his foot and turn his foot and squeeze out the blood to get enough blood in this vial. And it was miserable because it was horrible for him. He would cry. He would be in such distress. And I remember during those times in his little box, I would just stand right over him looking at him eye to eye and him looking at me and crying while they're doing what they're doing below and him looking at me with tears in his eyes and looking at me as a newborn and almost begging me saying, dad, make him stop, make him stop. You can do it. And I could have, right? I could have shoved the nurse. I could have pushed him away. I could have guarded my son and said, no, don't touch him. But what my son as a newborn didn't understand was if they don't do that, they can't care for him. What he didn't understand was they're working it for his ultimate good and he's crying to me as his father. And then it clicked. I'm the baby in the box. I'm the one who looks at God and says, why? You can stop it, surely. Right? We believe God can stop it. And yet God says no because I'm working it for your good. You don't understand it now, but one day you will. Right? And I can, I can honestly say that is one of the reasons that I can say my faith has grown through my son's condition is because God has shown me what that means. That even though I don't see it, he's never stopped loving me, he's never stopped caring for me, and he's doing it for my good. And I want my son to know that. I want my son to know that my wife and I let him go into surgery because it's for his good. And in the same way, that's how God deals with us. This should encourage us. Third comfort, we find at the end of verse 29 and 30, but it's a comfort that is wonderful, and it is this. God accomplishes your salvation from beginning to end. I love this in verse 30 when it says, and these whom he predestined, he chose them he set them apart. He also called them. And these whom he called, he also justified, meaning declared them righteous. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Believer, God accomplishes every step of the salvation process. You know why that's encouraging to me? Because if it was up to me, I'd be in trouble. If it was up to me to finish my salvation process I would be in a bad way. 
And so I can have peace knowing that Jesus has saved me and he's accomplishing my salvation fully. These are comforts that only the believer has. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, it's a quote I love. He says, it is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie on our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace, it continues with grace, it ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. It's grace. This is comforting. Fourthly, I love this. This is where Paul shifts to asking questions that he already knows the answer to, but he is just about to explode with praise. And it is exciting. And I hope you're excited because we're just getting into it right now. Verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these glorious things? Is in other words what he's saying. If God is for us, who is against us? His tone is not this. He's not saying, well, if God is for us, then let me consider what enemies are against us. No, he's saying, if God is for us, who can stand against him? It's a totally different tone. The implied answer is no one. And we see this so clearly from beginning to end in all scripture, right? Could Sodom and Gomorrah stop the judgment of God? No. Could Goliath stand before God's anointed people? No. Could Egypt crush God's people fully? No. Could the prophets of Baal stand against God? Could Baal himself stand against God? No. Could Satan himself tempt and defeat God in some way? No. Could death hold Jesus down? No. You know what that means for us? He's for you. And if he's for you, you're on the winning side. kind of like watching a, a sporting event that you record, but you already know the result and your team wins. Every step of the way, you're enjoying it because even when something bad happens on the field, you already know you're going to win. This is how we are in this life. Whatever happens, we are going to win. But not in us, it's in Christ. So believer, this comforts me to know God is for you. He is on your side. That's truth number four. But the opposite is also true. And I want us to consider this because if those who he is for and those who are on the side of God are victorious, then that also means that those who are against God will be defeated. So I want to ask you, and only you know the answer to this in your heart, do you stand with God or do you stand against God? And I don't mean, well, today choose... Okay, yeah, just follow God. No. Do you stand in faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If you do, then you are on God's side. If you trust in anything else or don't trust in anything at all, then you are against him. So just as this truth is peace for the believer, it causes great discomfort for the unbeliever. Because I can promise you this, unbeliever, you do not match the strength of Goliath you do not have the extensive nation that Egypt did. You do not have the powers of Satan, and all of them fall short. You cannot defeat God. So I encourage you, join his side through faith in Christ. Number five, we see this in verse 32. Look to the glory that awaits you, believer, that's purchased by Christ's blood Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We sometimes forget that God gave his son for you. And we wonder if God loves us. Should that not be the perfect indication of that truth? He gave his son for you. And if he gave his son who is of the utmost value, surely he will give you everything else. It's like me saying, if I'm willing to write you a million dollar check, wouldn't I also be willing to give you a few pennies? 
if I'm willing to give you something of the utmost value, how will I not also give you everything else? This is what he's saying. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Do you get that, believer? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul mentions this here as an encouragement to these believers. And I believe we can be encouraged as well. He wants them to focus on the truth that Jesus died for you and he gives you everything. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't have great riches. I don't have great possessions. No, no, no. He gives you everything you could ever want. Something that transcends anything in this world. Lasting peace with God. Pleasures forevermore. Perfect fellowship with him. He wants, Paul wants us to keep the eyes on the prize. Number six, the sixth reason for comfort is found in verse 33 through 34. He asks again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So my sixth point of comfort is this. No one is able to charge or condemn you. And the reasoning is clear. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God, God's elect? God's the one who justifies. In other words, if God has declared you righteous, who has more authority than God? The answer, of course, is no one. No one has the authority to overrule his verdict. Isn't that comforting? And if there's no charge that can stand against you, then no condemnation will come. There will be no hell for the believer. We can rest assured of that because of the work of Christ. Notice, too, we saw the, inter, uh, the interceding of the Spirit in verse 26, but we see another who intercedes for you. In verse 34, at the end part there, it says, who is at the right hand of God, this is speaking of Christ, who also intercedes for us. So you have the Spirit who's the helper, and you also have Christ who intercedes for us. Well, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, in this context, I think it means when somebody or something brings an accusation against you, Jesus Christ does away with it. Like a defense attorney would protect his client from accusations. So Jesus, when an accusation comes against you, he says, not my son, not my daughter, because they're in my righteousness, no charge will stand. He intercedes for us. Praise the Lord for this. And you might say, well, we're not, we might not be under criminal investigation. What do you mean by these charges? Well, maybe it could be charges from family. Maybe some of you have older children that have abandoned you. Maybe your older children have come to resent you in some way. For whatever it is, can their charges against you as being a hypocrite or as being... Uh, you know, mean or cruel or whatever it is, can those charges overrule God? No. Maybe you have a spouse who hates you. Or maybe you did and they left. And they claim that you're all of these things. You're evil. You say you're a Christian, but you're really this way. Can their charge stand against the, the, the declare of righteousness of God? No! You're declared righteous. Maybe you're somebody who is constantly weighed down and reminded by the evil that you used to commit. Maybe when you think of your past, you're just ashamed because of all the sins you've committed. And you're weighed down by this constantly. Can those sins or the people who saw you do those things, can they change the verdict of God? No. And finally, as if we needed another example, but can Satan, the great accuser himself, who is so quick to accuse us when we do wrong, right? When we do wrong, who's the first one that says, oh, see, you're a hypocrite. You say you love God and look at the way you just talked. Mm, you should really question your salvation because no Christian acts like that. He's so quick to accuse us, and guess what we're supposed to say? We're supposed to say, 
you can't charge me with that because Jesus Christ paid it all already. You can't condemn me because of what Jesus has done. This is wonderful truth that we cannot be charged, we cannot be condemned. Those who stand in Christ, that is, those who are not in Christ are condemned already. And there will be one of two people one day who have to bear the weight of judgment for your sins. It will either be yourself or Jesus Christ. And those who stand in Jesus will have no charge against them. Those who stand in themselves will be condemned. The seventh point of comfort, which extends the longest uh, portion of the verses here, verse 35 through 39, is this truth that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. We live in a world, don't we, that you can be separated from pretty much everything. There's nothing that we can hold on to fully. You want your kids to never grow up? They do. One day you'll be separated from them. You want to hang on to your spouse forever? You can't. One day you will be separated from them. You want to hang on to the money that you have? No, one day you might have, you, you might have it till the day you die, but death will separate you from it. We live in a world filled with separation. I want to talk about something you can never be separated from, and that's the love of Christ. This love of Christ that's mentioned here in verse 35, look at the question he asks. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? What love? That's the love, the sacrificial love of Christ that accomplishes your salvation from beginning to end. It is God's affection for you unto eternal salvation. Paul asks, who will separate us? Or what will separate us? He goes through a list just so we can thoroughly examine this. He starts with tribulation, which means to be squeezed or placed under pressure. It talks about affliction, anguish. Surely we all experience tribulation in some ways, or in many ways, perhaps. Maybe it's from persecution or enemies or circumstances. Can that separate you from the love of Christ? No, is the answer. Can distress, he says. That term distress means to be helplessly hemmed in. You're backed into a corner. Have you ever felt that way before, that there's no escape for whatever you're going through? You're backed into the corner with nowhere to go. Can you being backed into the corner take you away from God's love? No. Persecution? Well, some of us might say, well, we don't really experience that in, uh, in America today, so don't have to worry about that one. Well, let me ask you to consider this verse. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If you live for Christ, you will be persecuted. And Paul wants them to know, especially these Roman believers who are struggling with intense persecution, he wants them to know there's no amount of hatred that this world can throw at you that will take you out of God's love. How about famine? This could have been a result of persecution, surely. But the point is this. Paul's asking this. Can a lack of physical nourishment sever you from the bread of life? No. Can a lack of water to drink sever you from the one who provides living water? No. How about nakedness, being without clothing, being destitute, having nothing to your name? That's the idea here. Paul is essentially asking, will your lack of clothing take away your spiritual garments of righteousness in Christ? No. How about peril? If your life is in danger, we don't experience that, but there are many who do. And perhaps you will. But he wants you to know if that time comes, will it take away the love of Christ? No. Will your physical danger put you in eternal danger? No. How about the sword, if it comes to it and you are killed? Will that separate you from the love of Christ? Oh, no. In fact, it'll put you in more union with Christ than you've ever been before. No dagger, no sword can cut you out of God's hand. He goes on to quote an Old Testament passage in verse 36. We'll read this together. 
Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes this here, I believe, because this perhaps is the perspective of some of the Romans who are suffering. They share with this, they identify with this truth that they feel at times that they're just sheep to be slaughtered and Paul wants them to know, even if you're sheep to be slaughtered, oh, you can't be taken from the love of Christ. And more than that, it's not just that the love of Christ can't be taken from you, but it is this, verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Believers, you don't just survive this world, you conquer How do we conquer? Is it by way of force? Of course not. We have something way better than that. We conquer in suffering because we have a sure hope of glory. We conquer when we lack on this earth because we do not lack in Christ. And we conquer in death, even if they kill us, because when we're slaughtered, we're with Jesus. We win. We are conquerors in Christ. Paul is overwhelmed by this truth and he just keeps praising. This is how we should be. We should just keep on praising. And he goes on in verse 38 through 39 when he explodes with this truth again. He says this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And I just want to examine that for a second. Can death, when your life ends, separate you? No, we've already examined that. Can life, anything that happens on this earth, suffering or otherwise, can that separate you? No. Can angels or principalities, demons, or any ruler separate you? No, nobody has that authority. How about things present? Believer, I want you to think of everything you're dealing with right now, and I want you to remind yourself none of it can separate you from Christ. How about things to come? So any hypothetical scenario you could come up with, if you lost everything, would you lose the love of Christ? The answer is no. How about powers? Will any mighty deed or miracle worker, will they threaten to take away God's love? No. Anything above? Anything below? And just in case we missed one, Paul wants to clarify, can any created thing take you away from the love of Christ? No. That is comfort for me. That is the certain hope of the believer that you see nobody else can experience because all unbelievers hope in are things of this earth that can be taken. You see this all the time when they hope in money and the money goes, they're done away with. You hear parents say, my children are my world and when their children pass away before them tragically, they've lost their whole identity. You've seen them define themselves by their spouse and their spouse goes away. Or their possessions and their possessions fade. The believer's the only one that can have sure hope in all circumstances. And you might say, well, how does the assurance of our eternal standing before God, how does that assurance give me comfort in the moment? Well, believer, are you suffering in your health? And I know that many are. In fact, and I'll look into the camera for this, I know there are many at home who suffer because of that. My, people like my family who couldn't, can't be here right now because of various illnesses. I know, and I want you to hear this. If you're experiencing great weakness, fatigue, pain, frustration, remember that no amount of pain can take you away from Christ. And soon... It'll all be done. Soon we won't even think of pain. Can you imagine the new heavens and new earth where we don't even talk about pain? It's not even something that can be experienced. And heaven is not just the absence of pain. It is the perfect pleasure in Christ. That is hope. That is the hope of the believer Perhaps 
Some of you have been abandoned by people. Kids have forsaken you or spouses have forsaken you. I want you to remember you will never be forsaken by God. Perhaps you've been separated temporarily even from a spouse that has passed away. Maybe they're in heaven now. Oh, cling to the truth that you will be with them and cling to the truth that you will experience glory. Perhaps some of you have lost children or other family members and it's been very difficult. Cling to this truth. Believer, maybe you're suffering for your faith in some way. You might think that no suffering occurs in America. I, I think it does. Even if it's something, um, maybe people at work ridicule you because you have strong beliefs on some of the topics of today. Homosexuality, you call a sin, they call you crazy. Abortion, you say is wrong, it is murder. They say that's ridiculous. You don't understand a woman's choice. And the time will come, you see this now, where it will be, we might experience persecution in a physical way. But I want you to realize if you're suffering in some way, know that you are blessed. The Bible says so. If you're suffering, remember that all of these trials are just light and momentary when you consider the weight of the glory. Maybe there are some of you in this room who are, or who are watching online that do not have this hope. I remember when I told one of my coworkers in Colorado about Grayson's condition, and I had a pretty candid conversation, he was an unbeliever, and I just thought I was talking to a believer, and, and I told him, I said, you know what, if God chooses to take my son, if God chooses to take it all away, I'm not a lost man. And I, and I kind of just said, you know what I mean? He looked at me, he said, I have no idea what you mean. And I said, oh, that's true. You don't have the hope. And so we started talking about that. But do you see how if you lost everything, you're not lost? It's wonderful to know the Lord. It is a great comfort for me when I have questions and I'm confused and I don't know what to think or how to pray these truths comfort me. And if you do not have this comfort, oh, you can. You are but moments away from experiencing the greatest comfort on this earth and into eternity that you could ever experience. And it is through repentance and faith in Christ. You might say, well, I, I, you don't understand what I've done. I can't just repent that easily. I've got to pay for these sins. That's what Jesus has come to do. And if Jesus declares you righteous through faith, nobody can charge you. That's what we just learned. Don't delay. You can experience this comfort. But it's not just about comfort. It's about Christ. We have comfort because of Christ. Get to know him. That's why we learn the scriptures so we can know how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through repentance and faith, and you are but moments away from salvation if you would just repent and believe. It's wonderful to know that we have a secure hope in Christ when nothing else is really that secure on this earth. So when my son goes into surgery in about a week and a half, and my wife and I's hearts are filled with worry, filled with confusion, uncertainty, anxiety. I will take comfort in these truths we discussed today. First, that I have a helper in the Spirit who intercedes for me in ways I don't even understand and I can't see, but he intercedes for me in the ways that I need it. I can also rest in that God works all of it together for my good. Every detail, every high, every low, he's working it for my good. I can rest in the fact that God has accomplished my salvation from beginning to end. I add nothing to his work. I can rest in the fact that God is for me. He's not against me. He loves me. I can rest in the fact that I have a wonderful inheritance that awaits me because of Christ 
where suffering will be no more. I can rest in the fact that no one can charge and condemn me even when I don't suffer the right way or I sin. I know that it is not up to me. Jesus Christ declares me righteous because of his work. And I praise him for that. And finally, I take comfort in the fact that no one and nothing in this world, there is no created thing, there is no power that can take me away from the love of Christ. And I pray that these truths would comfort you all as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the comfort of your scriptures. I thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving many in this room. We couldn't do it on our own. Believers are the only ones who can have true, lasting comfort as we look to the glory that awaits us in heaven with Jesus Christ. It's all because of you. Without you, we are undone. But we thank you that we cannot be separated from you. Even when we feel separated from everyone or everything else in this world, we cannot be separated from you. Help us to cling to these truths. Let us hold onto them tightly. Let us be reminded of them in difficult seasons. And let us encourage others as they go through difficult seasons. I pray your blessing on these people. Help us, Lord, while we wait. We thank you for the reasons we can have comfort. Amen. Would you please stand with me for a closing benediction? May the God of all comfort cause you to remember these truths in times of trouble. In every circumstance, may God remind you it is working for your good. And may he fix your eyes on the glory that awaits you in heaven for all of eternity so that you might see all suffering as light and momentary in comparison. May God bless you and may he be magnified.